I think oftentimes there's this almost uh, need to find someone who understands exactly what you're going through. So you Google, you listen to podcasts, you look on Instagram, and you hear all these stories. And sometimes the reverse effect of that is you start to feel bad because you're not at that place yet. This is Alopecia Life with your host, Deanne Graham. You'll hear interviews with specialists in their field and parents who are helping their child move through life while living with alopecia areata, along with conversations with alopecia rock stars who are making a difference. Alopecia Life is here to provide you with support, accurate information, inspiring stories, and life hacks to help you navigate the world of hair loss. Whether you've just been diagnosed or have had it for ages, Alopecia Life has been created to share all the information you may want or need to do alopecia your way. Welcome to Alopecia Life, episode 26. Our guest today is Tracy Lee. Where do I start when I introduce Tracy? She is an award-winning producer, a journalist, and previously oversaw NBC Asian America at NBC News. She also helped launch MSNBC.com's first website. I'm going to stop here because you'll learn so much more about her as you listen. I met Tracy last year and I was super impressed not only by our casual conversation about alopecia, but the investment she has put into sharing Asian American history is something that drew me in even more. So today, you get a fantastic history lesson, talk about alopecia, a peek into what it's like to interview Matt Damon, and insight into a little-known podcast that grew exponentially by unforeseen circumstance. Tracy, welcome to Alopecia Life. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, and I will just tell you, I know we talked just a few moments ago about how I got immersed in your website. You have just been doing incredible things, and I want to talk about that a little bit later. But right now, let's talk about alopecia. Okay. How did you get diagnosed? Let's start with that. Yeah, so I started losing my hair when I was around, I would say, seven years old. I remember being in class, you know, kids sitting behind me started kind of pointing out this bald spot that I had in the back of my head that I didn't really know about and my mom didn't either. For a while, we just thought that it was normal, um, that it would there was something that was happening and it was just going to go away or uh, my hair would come back in that area. And then slowly over the next couple of years, my hair started to fall out at an like, even faster rate. And so it wasn't until maybe a couple years after that started happening that we kind of got the official name for it, what it was, which is alopecia. And you know, at the time, it wasn't like my parents could jump on the internet and really look it up, really knew what that meant. So it was really confusing, I think, for all of us, just not really knowing what it was. So we saw a lot of doctors, saw a lot of specialists who were all really reassuring and kind. But I started wearing wigs pretty much full time uh, by the end of sixth grade. Okay. Is that when you were completely bald or did you still have spots then? I would say I had about 30, 40% of my hair uh, around sixth grade. I mean, it was so, I look at school pictures from, you know, fourth, fifth grade and suddenly to sixth grade. And it's like this huge change in, in terms of just how much hair I had on my head. Uh, it was falling out so quickly. I went completely bald sometime near the end of high school, actually. So there was always like a little bit kind of remaining on my head for actually a while. And even right now, I was just saying to my sister the other day, like I've not had hair on my head for a really long time. And suddenly over the last few months, it's just started growing back. It's interesting. 
It is. It's so fickle, isn't it? It's, it is. Yeah. It does whatever it wants to do. Mm-hmm. So tell me. So you mentioned you have a sister. Do you have any other siblings? I just have an older sister. Okay. How was it growing up with having an older sister with a full head of hair? It was really hard because, you know, being Asian American, there's this sort of image in I think a lot of like popular media or pop culture of East Asian women having really long, thick black hair. And that's the kind of hair my sister has. Her hair grows super fast. It's very thick. She has beautiful hair. And so I was always very envious about, I mean, not just her hair. I mean, she's really beautiful overall. And I was always very jealous about her hair. And, you know, she never did anything to make me feel self-conscious or anything like that. I think it was more internally. You know, I would see Mm -hmm. how she looked in pictures when we did family pictures, things like that. And she could do all these things with her hair. But she's been so incredibly supportive. And she's actually grown out her hair a few times to cut and donate, which is really tough when you have like the thickness of hair she has because the summers can be pretty brutal in Los Angeles. So yeah, she's always been really supportive though. But I think for me growing up, I definitely felt insecure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can totally relate to that too. I've got two sisters and my younger sister has ridiculously thick hair. And she was like, I saw this commercial that said I could donate my hair or give you a hair transplant. (laughs) If only it worked that way, right? I know. (laughs) So a lot of what goes into what you do as a career is wrapped around being Asian American. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit about how that was growing up with alopecia kind of in your personal household? Yeah, you know, uh, in reference to my work uh, for the last few years, I was the managing editor of a site called NBC Asian America, which was a website off of NBCNews.com. And we focused on Asian American and Pacific Islander news, cultures, uh, features, opinions, things like that. And it's interesting because growing up, you know, the idea of representation and diversity, being Asian American, you know, I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me on TV in general. But to me, it was less important to see, not that it's not important. I thought more about not seeing people who looked like me because they had alopecia in pop culture. Like for me, it was, that was what I was looking for. That was what I was more almost like concerned about. Like I always felt, I use the phrase, and I don't like using this phrase, like the quote unquote ugly duckling, but that's how I felt growing up because I felt like I don't look like anybody else. You know, I couldn't jump on social media or the internet and find a community. I felt like I was the only person in the world going through this and it felt really isolating. And so in terms of just like all these different facets of my identity, being Asian, having alopecia, I kind of felt always like I didn't fit in anywhere and I wasn't sure if that was something that was ever going to change as I was growing up. But, you know, being able to find a community, whether it is the community I've found being Asian American and then finding this alopecia community, you know, it's kind of this this lesson to me that there's no such thing as being completely alone in whatever you're yeah. going through. Yeah. And that takes so long for us, doesn't it, really? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So is that kind of what led you to do what you do and bringing pieces of Asia America to the media, really? I mean, you're just talking about it saying, hey, you are not alone and we're going to represent these stories. We're going to talk about them in an accurate way, which seems very, very important to what you do. 
Yeah, I think one of my favorite things about journalism in general is it's like a really unique and kind of cool opportunity as a job to highlight underrepresented or often untold stories and voices. And I think the more that we see those people, hear those voices, it's almost like it makes it just a part of our daily lives, our daily news consumption, our daily media consumption, because it's really important what we see on TV, what we read online. Like I think about my parents who are immigrants, came here when they were children, but I almost wonder if they had news media or or any sort of media that reflected who they were, made them feel less alone and being in a new country that was completely foreign. They didn't speak the language that well. They were still trying to learn so many things. I wonder if that would have made such a big difference to them in terms of confidence, in terms of what they felt comfortable being able to pursue in a career or go out and learn things like that. So whether it is being Asian American or having alopecia, I just think that visibility, visibility and then talking about it, trying to remove any sort of stigma associated with it, I think that that's really important. Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, I was looking at interviews with people like Matt Damon, you know, yeah. when you're talking about the Great Wall. I mean, yeah. it just kind of it comes up and and you, I love how you just kind of said, well, this is what people are saying about this and what are you thinking about it? Yeah, that Matt Damon interview, it's so funny. I, you know, I was I was interviewing him ahead of, uh, as you mentioned, the film The Great Wall. And there was so much controversy about that film before it actually premiered about what it was, because there wasn't a lot of conversation about like what this film actually was. It looked like what we call in the community a white savior narrative. You know, a, a non-Asian person comes into China and saves the entire country. And we kind of right. see that in a lot of movies or popular media just in general. And that's what it looked like this film was. And, you know, I saw the film before I interviewed him. And that's not exactly it. Not that it makes it a great film. I think there were a lot of problems with that film in general. But I just kind of wanted to lay all the facts out there and let him speak about it. And, and you know, when I walked into that room, when you do junkets, uh, that's what they call them, to do press for a film, you kind of line up in this hallway with a bunch of other journalists. You go in one by one. And you have like five to ten minutes to talk with a celebrity or a director or a writer. And I was standing in this hallway and I was the only non-white person there really? to interview him. And I found that really, at least at the for the broadcast interviews, I think for maybe text or, you know, magazines or anything like that, there might have been more diverse people. But I often find in journalism, like I'm still kind of often the only Asian American woman in the room. Uh, trying to sit at these tables and have these conversations about inclusion and representation. At least I found that at my last job um, at NBC. I'm not with NBC anymore, but it's still kind of a challenge and it just almost invigorates me even more to like want to fight for representation. Yes, I love it. And this isn't the only place where where this happens. I mean, like you said, I, I've seen when you post about being on diversity panels, right? And you're mm -hmm. you're there with five white men. How does that kind of speak to how how far we want to continue to keep going and just pushing and like you said, feel invigorated by by what needs to still happen? It's interesting because, you know, those types of panels and oftentimes when I say yes, I do try to ask who else is going to be on a panel, right? I don't want to be, I don't want to be tokenized. And that's right. happened to me quite a bit in my career of like, oh, we need someone who checks the box of being a woman, of being diverse, mm -hmm. of being young, all of these different check boxes. And, and they kind of find it all in me. And I used to hate doing public speaking or I don't, I don't enjoy being on TV. You know, I've done a couple of 
TV type appearances, or I used to co-host a show on msnbc.com a few years ago. I really hate doing that. I think so much of it is associated with still being sometimes insecure about my alopecia because I do wear a wig. And sometimes I'll post a video clip of a segment I've done and people will comment and say, like, why don't you have eyebrows or things like that? And I always try to just, you know, lead with education and trying to inform them, um, which I found to be really successful. But I really have never liked doing public appearance type things. But I really pushed myself to do it because I sit here and preach all the time about, you know, visibility and tearing down stigmas and just talking more about it. I'm like, I have to practice what I preach and really find a way to lead by example. So I've kind of forced myself a little bit uh, more to do those types of things. But it's really hard. Like I said, I don't want to be tokenized. I don't enjoy it. Anytime I'm on a panel like that, I do try to call out the lack of diversity on the panel. I'm very vocal in the planning stages of not wanting to be the only representative of a marginalized community. Because I think it's really unfair to, for me, like the burden then falls on me to speak for all people who are not represented on that panel. And it becomes a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want to be the only voice speaking for a population, right? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, my experiences as a second generation Chinese American woman is not going to be the same as somebody from the South Asian community or the Southeast Asian community. Everyone falls in different class levels and education levels and experiences and all these different types mm-hmm. of things. And I would hate to for people to treat my experience as the same as theirs. Mm-hmm, for sure. And do you see that maybe your producing could lead to something with alopecia, talking about it openly with other people with alopecia and educating on TV? I would love to see that, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I've always thought about what's another medium or format we can use to bring our stories forward. You know, I, I love being able to encounter podcasts like yours, or even when I see segments on like the Today Show during um, Alopecia Awareness Month, they, they've done something in the past or, you know, videos online that you see those sort of viral type videos that go up on like Facebook and Instagram and things like that. I always really want to find opportunities to just talk about alopecia because growing up and not hearing people talk about it, that really, I think, affected me. So I love being able to see what kinds of projects are already out there. But I also, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer kind of at heart. That's really mm-hmm. what I like to consider my strength and what I enjoy doing the most. So blogging about it. I have an Instagram account that I keep pretty updated. Uh, well, actually, don't keep it pretty updated. That's a lie. I feel like once a month, maybe I need to keep it more updated. That's the thing. And just being very open, you know, when people ask about it or anything like that, I, I just want to find a way to use the media platforms we have out there to tell stories. Yeah, well, I think you're doing that incredibly. And I always love when I see new writing from Tracy come through. Oh, I'm like, oh, yes! I get, Thanks to, so I get much. to laugh. Well, I get to laugh a little bit because you are so funny in your writing and really human in how you write. And I love that. Thank you. I mean, I, it's funny. I, um, you know, I got connected to, I met, you know, I met you through the Children's Alopecia Project and I got connected to that because I had written a personal essay for The Cut, which is based out of um, New York. It's part of the New York Magazine group. And that was something that someone else had found and said, have you heard of this camp and things like that. And so it's led to so many amazing opportunities, just my writing. And so I've always wanted to compile like a sort of anthology and get more people to collaborate on stories. But all of these projects, sometimes I run ahead of myself a little bit. Yeah, I have so many projects I'd love to do and would love to see happen one day. But yeah, I'm sort of taking it one day at a time to figure out what's next. 
Yeah. Well, what really is next? What is coming up for you? I know you're you're a fellow right now at mm-hmm. USC. Yes, I'm in this year-long fellowship, which for the school year. So I started back in the fall, 2019. Uh, it's a two-semester program where basically they take leaders from various newsrooms with different levels of experience, different comfort level in terms of television, radio, reporting, editing, social media, and they put us into uh, the newsroom here at USC Annenberg. Annenberg has this amazing media center. It's this multi-platform newsroom that is nicer than I think most of the newsrooms I've worked in. And I've worked in some pretty nice newsrooms, but they've got a full TV studio. They've got a full radio and podcast studio and just all these resources, but they want to bring in people who have outside experience in sort of the quote unquote real world of journalism. And we basically are here to teach, advise, coach students and student leaders on how to be a journalist, especially because it's so easy to sit in a classroom and hear someone talk about how you should be a journalist, but it's different to actually go out and practice it. So that's what I'm doing for the school year. That ends in basically May, the spring of 2020. And after that, I'm not sure. I'm still weighing whether or not I want to go back into daily news, which is something I did for a long time. But the news cycle is also really exhausting. And that doesn't leave a lot of opportunities to do the kind of storytelling I really want to do. So I'm not entirely sure yet. I feel like I'm graduating all over again. (laughs) (laughs) And you've actually been working doing this since 2011, right? I graduated in uh, spring of 2011, Later at the end of that year, I moved to D.C. because I'm originally from California. I moved to D.C. to intern at NPR. Mm-hmm. And then after that, have just been really fortunate to continue to find. I moved to New York at the beginning of 2012 as an intern for MSNBC and then got hired full time after a few months and have been sort of in the NBC world for the past eight years, basically. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. And May is coming up, which is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Mm-hmm. And what, what's going on? I mean, since you're not with NBC anymore, you're not working on those particular projects, but what's happening for you in terms of that month? Because it's really representative of who you are. Yeah, it's so funny. I was just saying to someone the other day, like, I'm looking forward to actually enjoying Heritage Month this year. Not that I didn't enjoy it the past few years, but you know, being managing editor at NBC Asian America, we always did these huge projects. So, you know, for two years in a row, we did our version of like a Forbes 30 under 30 list, but we focused it on people in the Asian American Pacific Islander community who are kind of about to break through or about to do amazing things. So we've had everyone from like Aquafina to the Shibitani siblings, Olympic medalist Shibitani siblings. So we've kind of had everyone on that list and we've done original interviews and we traveled all around the country to film them and talk to them and do photos. And then last year we did this huge history project that basically tried to correct the curriculum of U.S. history courses that mm-hmm. often forgot Asian American voices. And so it's a huge project. And I'm always traveling during Heritage Month to speak at places, to represent the company. And just there were always so many things. And so this year I realized, because usually around this time I would be pretty deep into planning mode for it, but I'm not having to do that this year. So, you know, there are always like film festivals, especially in Los Angeles, the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. It's usually in April, May. Yeah, I want to just be able to go to panels or film festivals or events and just kind of enjoy them with my friends because I feel like I haven't done that for a while and just celebrate what it means to be Asian American. Yeah, that's awesome. That's incredible. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for you. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of what is happening today is talk about deportation. And 
you talk about write our stories. I was looking at that piece of the website on NBC News, and they were talking about Cambodian refugees being deported. Do you have any information about that? Because like you said, you know, history books are not really telling it like it is. And we want to be accurate in what we're talking about. Yeah, I think so much of what's happening in Southeast Asian communities when it comes to deportations, the reason why those stories don't get told in the, I guess what you can consider the mainstream is because they're complex and they're not exactly easy to explain or digest, right? So in 2017, we released a documentary called Deported, which focused on the deportation of Cambodian refugees, which is something that a lot of people didn't really know about. I think the assumption is, I think there's a lot of misinformation when it comes to refugees in general. You know, people think that they could easily just come into this country or whatever narratives you might hear about uh, refugees in this country. It's actually very hard to come to this country as a refugee. And especially for Southeast Asian refugees, many who've been here since the 70s, uh, who fled their countries because of violence and other things. Some people don't realize that they can be deported. Uh, there were a series of laws that were signed in the 90s that created this pathway to deportation if if you cr- uh, committed a crime. And so because of those types of things, you know, people feel, well, if you committed a crime, you should not be in this country. But If the crime for a citizen is jail time or probation, and yet for someone who's a refugee, the punishment is to be deported, like it's very extreme. And so learning all of that, we just wanted to tell people what was happening, lay it out there. You know, they make their own decisions about politically how they feel uh, what should happen. But it's something that's still ongoing for the Cambodian community, for the Vietnamese community. I've read recently a report about Hmong refugees in the Midwest also encountering these problems. It's surprising how widespread it is and how much it's constantly changing from day to day. And I think that's the other thing that makes it difficult to talk about. There's not a closed door on this issue in the same way that the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, like that is something that happened in our past and we're continuing to educate on it. But, you know, we may be encountering communities that are also suffering persecution in a similar way. But when we talk about the incarceration of Japanese Americans, that's something that's, you know, we can look back to and say, like, what are the lessons we've learned from it? When it comes to deportation and immigration issues, I don't know if people are really looking to see what lessons we're taking away from it because it's so of the now and happening right now. And I think it's really hard to because politically immigration issues, I feel like every time they make their way through the sea of whatever system you have to go through in Washington to get anything mm-hmm. heard, like it just gets stuck in between partisan arguing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I'm going to lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> Let's talk about um, your Dawson's Creek podcast. Which oh, yes. is, so a lot of people will think that you're you're quite young looking at you. And yeah. when, you, when you are talking about Dawson's Creek, a lot of younger generations won't under, they're like Dawson's Creek. What are you even talking about? I don't even know that show. <laughs> so let's talk about your love, obviously, for Dawson's Creek and, and talking about it. I actually have not heard any of the episodes, but I know, let's talk about it. So funny because, you know, in my career, essentially, you know, I've done political reporting, I've covered breaking news, I've, you know, this topic of Asian American Pacific Islanders, like we did a lot of politics and heavy news, we also did light news, I don't want to say light news, but more lifestyle kind of culture stuff. And I love doing sort of a variety of it. And a lot of people felt like this podcast was completely out of left field. Um, I co-host it with one of my best friends who actually, we worked together at NBC, we ran NBC Asian America together, there was only two of us on uh, this website. And we started it mainly because 
we felt like we needed something else to talk about (laughs) other than work. And then we were just so deep into our work and what we were doing, which is great. But, you know, on a Saturday, when you wake up at 9am, you don't want to start talking about I don't know, like immigration issues, right? Like it was just, it just felt like a lot. And we, we were interested in podcasting as a medium because we both love podcasts and we were just interested in what it takes to put a podcast together. There was some conversation at the time, this was back in like 2017, there was talk about NBC kind of exploring podcasts, which they are now, but so there was no model for it. So we thought, well, we're going to be the ones who like become experts in it so we could tell people what to do with their podcast. (laughs) And so the best way, in my opinion, to learn how to do something is just to kind of do it and figure it out from there. And we picked the format of doing a weekly show about a weekly TV show because it's a predictable format and that every week, you know, you're going to talk about an episode. You kind of have like a set amount of things to talk about. You know, there's an end date to it. So if things don't work out, you can, you know, end it at around like the end of a season or whatever. And we picked Dawson's Creek because it was a show that not a lot of people were talking about. At the time, you couldn't stream it anywhere except for like the freeform website. You couldn't find it on Hulu, on Amazon or anything like that. So we picked a show that not a lot of people were talking about because we actually didn't want a lot of people to listen to it because we knew it was going to be bad when we started it. And we were really just trying to learn. So we started doing it. You know, we created our social media accounts just for fun. And then people started listening to it, which was cool. I mean, we went from no listeners to maybe like a couple, like a dozen listeners and then maybe 20, 30 listeners. And then about a year into it, I mean, and Dawson's Creek is a show, you know, the format we do, it's very similar to um, a few other podcasts have done it like this. I've seen the show before and my co-host has never seen it. So he's kind of discovering it for the first time. Yeah. And it's really funny because he didn't grow up watching, like I grew up loving television and and soapy teen dramas and he's never watched any of these things, but he finds it interesting. He almost like treats it like it's a class, right? Like he really wants to watch these things and understand why people love them. The fun of it is how do you keep somebody from being spoiled about a 20 year old show, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. like, you could go on the internet, Google it and find out what happens, but he doesn't want to be spoiled which has been hard to keep it from him because in 2018, about a year after we started our podcast, it was the 20th anniversary of the show being created and Entertainment Weekly did this big reunion special and it was the first time the cast had ever done any sort of a reunion and then everyone was talking about the show. Our listener base kind of went from like maybe 10, 20 people to like hundreds and thousands of people all of a sudden and we were completely blown away because then we felt like, oh my gosh, people are actually listening to us now. We have to know what we're doing. And it, it kind of made it more fun though. I mean, we had so many people interacting with us. We really never thought we would get to the end of the show. We're actually ending it soon. It's March right now. It's scheduled to end, I think March 30th is our last episode. And it's been three years. It's insane to us. It's been three years and people still want to listen to us. But it's just something that's been so fun. And it's helped us in moments when we're stressed out about various things. You know, when I left NBC and started a new job and, you know, going through any personal things, my co-host also left NBC. He's now in law school. So, you know, he was studying for the exams and things like that as we were doing this podcast. And it's just been a fun thing to talk about. Dawson's Creek is one of those shows where it was one of the first shows of its kind on the WB to do the genre of a teen drama. And you can find so many 
actors or you know people who kind of got their start there and it's just it's just been a lot of fun to revisit that and then to share that love with not just people who are fans of the show but people who are also discovering it for the first time because now it is on hulu and amazon prime and i think it's on netflix in some countries just kind of <laughs> lighten it up and like yes, said, yeah. Saturday morning listening. And yeah, that's great. What would you like to share with any anyone who's kind of being diagnosed with alopecia right now? What kind of advice would you like to give? I always tell people, I've been asked this a, a few times just from people, my friends actually, like I have a really good friend who just told me that she recently started losing her hair and she, when she started reading, you know, the things I was writing and, you know, listening to me talk, she wanted to sort of confide in me and she's been so scared or anxious about it. And the thing that I always say to her and I would say to anybody is everyone comes to terms with alopecia at their own pace. I think oftentimes there's this almost uh, need to find someone who understands exactly what you're going through. So you Google, you listen to podcasts, you look on Instagram and you hear all these stories and Sometimes the reverse effect of that is you start to feel bad because you're not at that place yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important to hear those stories. I think it's really important to understand that you're not alone, that there is a community out there. But there's not a singular experience when it comes to alopecia. It affects people in different ways. Uh, that There are different types, you know, that all of those things that, you know, people are probably discovering in their research, but also understanding that it's okay if you're struggling you know, it's okay if you still want to wear a wig when you go outside. I wear a wig all the time when I'm outside. It's okay if you don't want to wear a wig. It's okay if you decide to shave your hair. Like all of those things that there's no one way to be somebody with alopecia, right? Like there's no one way to be an alopecia. And everyone has a different journey and experience. And your journey and experience is going to be unique and different as well. So I had someone say to me, once, like, oh, I feel like a bad alopecia because I wear a wig all the time. And I'm like, I don't think that makes you a bad alopecia. It makes you someone with alopecia who likes to wear a wig. Like that's okay. And I think, I think understanding that, like, I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that that is a message that comes through in in all my interviews, people saying, you know, there's no one right way to do this. It's mm-hmm. it's not a this is the way to do it. And it, you're going to feel just perfect or you're you know going to feel brave or courageous because exactly. of, yeah. of that. It just it takes on so many different forms for sure. Mm-hmm. So how can people find you on social media or your website? I'd love to have people reach out to you. Yeah, so all of my social media, uh, it's my full name, Tracy, uh, T-R-A-C-I-G-L-E-E. The G is my middle initial, but that is my handle basically on everything, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And then uh, my website is tracygeely.com. And I have a contact form there if you want to reach out to me. But yeah, I'm always happy to talk to people about alopecia. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I will say, I will encourage all of you to go check out her website. All of her work is there that she's done with NBC and her interviews and particularly an interview or some writing that she did for Teen Vogue, which I found really awesome too. So thank Thank you you. so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us today, Tracy. Yeah. Thank you. I'm really glad that this podcast exists and that you're doing this. and, And yeah, it's just been amazing to feel a part of this community. Thank you for listening today. Check out our show notes to connect with Tracy on social media, especially the one for Dawson Speak podcast. I encourage you to go to her website, tracyglee.com to see what she's working on next. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time. 
Thank you for listening. Join our Alopecia Life Facebook group and find out more information at headonlifecoaching.com. The information on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and is meant for general information purposes only. If you're enjoying these episodes and finding the tips helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to and download podcasts.